Today we find ourselves in Mark chapter 7. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 24, working our way through verse 37 today. Um, the Gospel of Mark, uh, is, it's been a great series. If you've been with us, you know uh, it's the least preached gospel. Uh, and so that was uh, exciting for us as a pastoral staff to say, hey, let's, let's dive into this one and let's take a look at this one. Uh, we know that Mark or John Mark was, was called to write this gospel by the Holy Spirit uh, to a Gentile audience. Uh, and unless any of you are Jews that I don't know about, I apologize ahead of time if you are, but m- the majority of us, if not all of us are Gentile. And so it's kind of neat to have uh, one of the Gospels, one of the stories of Jesus Christ's time on this earth to be written to Gentiles, to be written to us. And we've noticed that Mark uses few words to say exactly what he means to say. Not a lot of detail is given, so we're able to go to other Gospels to kind of flesh out the stories. Uh, but it's really neat because we've noticed that he is He's honing in on particular things that he wants the reader to see, hear, understand, and then be changed by. And so today, uh, we're going to look at a section here where we're going to encourage one another to find our sufficiency and our satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Uh, again, we're in the time now Jesus is, is, is in his ministry. He's ministering all over the place. There's healings going on, teaching, uh, and, and just incredible things are happening. Every time he tries to sneak away to get a little time on his own or, or with his closest friends, the disciples, people find him. He can't get any time alone. And, and, uh, and so ministry is just, it's going. It's going full force for him. And, uh, and a couple things that we've been seeing, but that we'll really see today. Uh, number one is we're going to see that Jesus is the savior who is sufficient to save the whole world. So Jesus came to this earth first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. There's multiple passages in scripture that talk about that. God's chosen people were the Jews. God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to make you an incredible nation. You're going to be great, and you are my people. That was Old Testament. God chose this people, and he showed himself in incredible ways through the history of the Jewish people. But when Jesus came, God was opening that up, at least in a more visible sense. Because you can go back into the Old Testament, and you can see where God's grace was sufficient for the Gentile also. Uh, But his people now are becoming everyone. And the second thing we see is Jesus is a savior who does all things well. Uh, And the word that, 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 that John Mark uses here that we translate well is good. It's the same root word as when God created in Genesis. So I'm giving you a little bit of a heads up that that idea that God created and it was good, and that was said after each day of creation, it's that same idea here when we're talking about Jesus and what he is doing in and amongst the people uh, of of this day. So we're going to find ourselves, like I said, uh, starting in chapter, or in in verse 24 of chapter 7. We'll have the words up here on the screen, or if you have your Bibles uh, with you, we invite you to open those up so you can take some notes. If you don't have a copy of God's Word back on the back table, we have a, uh, a section called Grab a Bible Table. And we have Bibles there. And if you want one, you can grab one and you can keep that, make it your own, write, uh, maybe write in there your name and, and, and just make that uh, something that you can take with you from here and have all the time. Let it be a gift from us to you. 
Starting in verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So the beginning of chapter 7 had Jesus likely still in the region of Gesenaret, where he had healed many. And, and then the Pharisees came. Remember, they tried, to, uh, they tried to trap him. They came from Jerusalem. They wanted to challenge Jesus. And, and last week, they tried to catch him in this hand-washing controversy. Clean versus unclean. And your disciples don't wash their hands when they eat. And, and, and Jesus pointed out their hypocrisy last week with some very pointed words. This could not have made them happy. So my guess, uh, as we were sitting around uh, writing this sermon this week and doing some reading, um, our guess, our, our thought was Jesus probably had ticked off the Pharisees pretty good. They're starting to think through, how do we get rid of this guy? Because he's a real thorn in our side. And so that might have had something to do here with the direction that Jesus goes in. He takes his disciples. They decide to get away get away from these detractors, the Pharisees, the scribes, before they do something uh, crazy. And, and, And he knows his time is coming when he will go to the cross. But just like when he was being pushed and crushed against by the lake as he was teaching, he got into the boat and kind of went out. He knew it wasn't his time, right, to die. And even though that would have been more of an accidental, just the mob of the crowd, the thousands of people pushing in on him, here he knew it wasn't quite time for him to go to the cross. He had some stuff he still needed to do. And and he just didn't know about these Pharisees and these scribes. So he had more ministry to do, and that took him up to Tyre and Sidon. So the journey that he goes on, the destinations in this story they have some seriously incredible theological importance. He definitely went away. He went up to Tyre and and Sidon. He went outside of uh, the nation, the Jewish people, and he went into Gentile land. He's spent most of his time so far, not all of it, but most of his time with the Jews. God loves the Jews. We've talked about that even this morning. God chose the Jewish people, and he still has them as his chosen people. Salvation would come through the Jews. Jesus was a Jew, in fact. The salvation uh, would not only be for the Jews, though. It would be for all mankind. And so the first story uh, that will show us that Jesus is the Savior who's sufficient to save the whole world. That's why he's going into the Gentile area. He's going to do ministry there. Jesus is the Savior who is sufficient to save the whole world. The Roman audience that Mark is writing to would receive much comfort from this fact. Because again, even even after Jesus had died, was buried, rose again, and went back to heaven, you had some Jews that still thought Jesus only came to save them. And so Mark was reaching out to those who had actually believed in Jesus that were Gentiles, that were Romans, that were outside of the Jewish people, and he was trying to encourage him them through stories like this. Jesus' ministry will indeed be for all the world. Uh, and, and he loves the Jews, but he also loves the Gentiles. 
You may also remember that Jesus and his disciples, they really needed some rest. Every time they've tried to get away, his work or his ministry has followed them. And he hasn't been able to get away and get any rest. No matter what he had done or how hard he had tried, the crowds would find him. The people would find him. They were bringing the sick. They were bringing those who needed to hear the good news. So that might be another reason that they were heading to Tyre and Sidon, this area up north. And, and so that's likely why Mark pens, and he entered a house and didn't want anyone to know. Okay? So Jesus is like, I'm getting out of town, I'm getting to a quiet place, and nobody knows where I'm at, right? Well, then one of his disciples posted on Facebook, and all of a sudden he couldn't stay hidden. No, not really, but you know how it is. You like to get away. You have your favorite beach place that you want to go to. You just you and your, and your loved one just get out of town. Well, Jesus is trying to get away. He, he continues in his ministry to draw these needy masses of people. We're not talking about dozens or hundreds. We're talking thousands of people. And Jesus loves each one of them, and he wants to heal them, and he wants to share the good news of a righted relationship with God, a kingdom come, not an earthly kingdom, but heaven. And so here, Jesus is saying, I need to get away. But in the back of his mind, he knows that there's Gentile territory that he needs to do some ministry in. So we're going to continue on here in verse 25. It says, but immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast out the demon of her daughter. Immediately, Mark uses this word a lot. We're going from one story to the next. Jesus, his disciples, they go north. They enter a house. They're trying to get some rest. And immediately, a woman shows up. A Gentile woman. We notice the humility that this woman comes in. It says she fell down at Jesus' feet. So here's the teacher, the rabbi in a Gentile land, not amongst the Jews. He's there. Somebody's opened his home. The disciples are there, and a woman finds out he's there, goes and falls down at his feet to ask this request. Now, this is a big ask, especially in this day and age, right? Kind of the three strikes, you're out. One, she was a woman, And in that day and age, a woman would not go and talk to a rabbi or to a teacher. So that really was a strike against her. The second is that she was a Gentile. Not only was she a a Jewish woman, she was a Gentile woman, right? Uh, And the Jews were hostile with this particular group. Another strike against her. And then her little daughter was possessed by a demon. Again, we have seen this last week, that idea of uncleanliness and that Jesus came and he's here to clean all that up. But in this story, what this woman would know is that her daughter wasn't welcome in places of worship, even in her own country, let alone in the Jewish country, because her daughter was possessed by a demon. Three strikes. But One thing that Kevin and I, Pastor Kevin and I, as we were looking at this story this week, said is you can't underestimate the power of a mom. 
right? There's desperation here in this story, right? She is first and foremost a mother. And, and there's something about that mom or that parent when they're helpless and they want that cure, that ailment for their child, they're going to do whatever it takes. This is a desperate move by this woman. So before we just read through this quick and get into the next slide, I want you to understand what this woman risked by going to Jesus. She begged Jesus to cast cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus' response might surprise you. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. This is an incredible story here. Jesus' response to her, it, it's kind of like a, a riddle, okay? It, and it, it does sound kind of harsh. If, as we look through this, it kind of will make sense to you how harsh this kind of sounds because I don't think that it's as harsh as you might think. First of all, this parable is, it, or this response is in a parable form, right? And this shouldn't surprise us by now. We know that Jesus spoke in parables. And all the people on the hills were scratching their head, what does this mean? Right? And then Jesus would be alone with his disciples, and they would say, what did you mean? And, and the, the kingdom of God is being revealed to people. Right? He who has ears, let him hear. It means more than just everybody out there's got ears, open them up, I'm about to talk. But it's the people who have the insight, the understanding that it takes to know what Jesus is saying. Right? It separated believers or those who understood Jesus and why he came to this earth from those who were unbelievers, who didn't place their faith in him yet, in a sense. So those who had hear, ears to hear, they would understand. Those who didn't were often re referred to at this point as hard-hearted. And we're going to get back to that concept in a second. In the parable, though, you could look at this and say, well, Jesus, is he really calling her a dog? Right? This, this seems a little crazy. And if you know Jewish culture of the day, dogs were not exactly highly thought of. Right? They were running amongst the, or out in the street. They were scavengers. They weren't necessarily pets like we have. This morning even, I, I was out there greeting people as they were coming in, and, and there were multiple conversations about some of your families who've gotten new pets like within the last few weeks, probably Christmas gifts, right? And, and for the kids or whatever. So people are talking about their dogs. They have a love for dogs. In this day and age, it wasn't quite the same. They, uh, in Jewish culture, especially scavenger dogs, were not looked at with any sort of love. But the word that Jesus uses here in the original Greek is not dog, as in a street mongrel, but it would be more accurately translated. And I was... I was really surprised by this. I've studied Mark before, and I didn't recall this. But it was actually translated as puppies. There were some dogs that the Jewish people even would keep as pets. The more I read on this, it was, it was really interesting. I didn't realize that. But if you think about that, it makes a little bit more sense. Jesus has just recently gone head-to-head -head with the scribes and the Pharisees. We remember that from last week. Saying that no animal is unclean that no food is unclean, 
that it doesn't matter if my disciples wash their hands before they eat, doesn't make them unclean. What he said about being unclean was, if you remember, it comes from what's on the inside, from your heart. And that's not the heart that's pumping the blood. That's your being. That's who you are. That's where things that could defile us or make us unclean come from. Not from what we eat or the animals we have around us. Jesus had just had these conversations with the Pharisees. So here we see that it wouldn't make sense for him now to declare this woman unclean or unworthy because dogs are unclean. And if you look at the story, the woman understood what Jesus meant by the word that he spoke because she doesn't take offense. Not at all. Pets part of the family, right? She understood what Jesus was trying to say. And this is the first time in the gospel of Mark where somebody understands a parable the first time around. Let's continue on here. Uh, in, in, in what, what happened here. Notice what she does, and this is huge. She inserts herself and her little daughter right into the parable. Again, as we've been studying this, we have seen people not understand these parables, not understand what's going on. Even his closest friends, the disciples, always needing to ask him more questions, follow-up questions. What are you trying to say, Jesus. When you tell this story, what, what do you mean? And Jesus is loving and he explains things, but they're not getting it. Here, we see a response that makes us believe that she understood exactly what Jesus was saying. Her eyes were open. Her hard heart was softened, right? She puts herself, her little daughter, right into this parable. I think it's remarkable. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She recognizes what Jesus is saying, which is remarkable. Because nobody else, at least documented in the book of Mark, at this point has understood a parable the first time around. And she is a woman and a Gentile. And so again, we see not only Mark elevating through his writing women and outsiders, but also Jesus in his ministry. The disciples have often had to speak with Jesus about what the parables that he spoke meant. So I can imagine here, were they confused? Were they not understanding what Jesus had just spoken? Or did they think they knew what Jesus was trying to say? And yet here the woman dares to speak and engage Jesus about the story he just tells. This Gentile woman gets it. Jesus, his, mes- his message through this parable is clear to her. I have come to minister to Israel first, right? That's my primary calling. That's why I'm here, right? But Jesus isn't saying that he won't help the Gentiles. He says, let the children be fed first, which is important. It's not that he won't bring salvation to the rest of the world, But there was an order. There was God's plan. And we've seen this a couple times in Mark where his plan, God's plan, is more important than what the the world's situation is trying to dictate. 
And so he knows what needs to happen here. In Isaiah chapters 42, 49, 61, we see prophecies about this. Jesus was coming for the Jews. The Messiah was coming for the Jews and then for all people. The servant of the Lord must first go to restore the tribes of Jacob, right? It says that in Isaiah 42, and then to be a light for all nations. First for the tribes of Jacob or the Jews, then to be a light for all nations. There's also a hidden breadcrumb in how, how he says, let the children be fed first. The NIV, I think, rightly translate the, translates this. It says, eat all that they want. Okay? I think that's a little bit better translation here. The phrase uh, is used only two other times by Jesus in, the, in, the, in Mark here, that idea of eating all they want. One of them was in the feeding of the 5,000, which we've already said that's 5,000 men, so we're probably close to 10 to 20,000 when you add the women and the children. But Jesus tells them to eat all they want, right? And then there'll be another story where he feeds 4,000 people. If you remember back to that story, after those 5,000 men plus women and children ate all that they wanted from five loaves and two fishes, at the end of that story, what happens? Yeah, the disciples fill up more baskets. There is leftover. There is plenty for everyone, Again, going back to what I said originally, and I've said it every week, Mark chooses his words very carefully. This idea that my children or the children of Israel we eat first, but there is plenty for everyone. There are leftovers. The fact that the Gentile woman doesn't fight this at all shows her faith. What she had heard about Jesus before and what she had experienced in these few minutes on the floor at his feet. She understands that Israel is God's chosen nation and she believes that the table of the kingdom of God has enough food for even the Gentiles. Can I get an amen for that? Because we are the Gentiles that Jesus Christ came for. Even those who are not fortunate enough to be Jewish are still God's creation. And this abundance... This abundance is more than enough. Jesus has more than enough. This woman seems to to understand the purpose of Israel's Messiah better than Israel does. Her pluck and and her persistence, I should say, are, are a testimony to her trust in the sufficiency and surplus of Jesus. His provision for the disciples and Israel will be abundant enough to provide for one such as herself. She knows that Jesus is more than enough. He has brought enough for everyone. Jesus tests this woman's faith and she passes it with flying colors. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. Right For what you've said, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. The woman submits her cause to Jesus, believing in faith that even his table scraps are enough to satisfy. Do we believe that today? She is left not disappointed. Jesus doesn't even need to see this little girl. 
He delivers her instantly. I think at the moment of the request, the moment of the faith. Again, don't miss this. This woman is the first person in the book of Mark to hear and truly understand Jesus. To understand a parable and how she fit into it. She enters into the parable. She believes it. She listens to what Jesus is saying and uses those word pictures to understand God's plan. She met the living Lord in whom she had faith could save her out of the superabundance of his love and his kingdom. No matter where you are today, Jesus can save you from that. This story is of great theological significance for for Mark, for those who read it, and for us. God has come in the flesh to the nation of Israel, right? He, He has come in flesh to the nation of Israel. But that can't be something that we allow uh, to somehow offend us as non-Jews. Because God's plans are right. And God does not need me questioning him. God sent his son to the Jewish people, knowing that the plan was to then extend the invitation to the Gentiles. Do we believe in faith out of a superabundance of God? It spills over everything that we can imagine. And it can include the whole world. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, and then also to the Greek. And God is not finished with Israel. In Romans 11 They boldly claim, uh, the author boldly claims, so you will not be conceited, brothers. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come to Israel until the full number of Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. In other words, God is, it's in his plan. He is saving his people, but he is allowing for us, the Gentiles, to come in. And his plan to redeem his children will not be changed because of that. Jesus is the Savior who is sufficient to save the whole world, not just the Jewish people. Because he is the Savior who also does all things well. As we continue on here in verse 31, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee into the region of the Decapolis. And they brought him to a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. So here, let's bring up our map again. I think we had this up there one of the, one of the first weeks, right? So first we have Tyre. Uh, we can see how far north he goes. Most of that, uh, uh, I don't even know what to call that mustard yellow, is where he's been, uh, kind of the Sea of Galilee. Now he's heading up to Tyre. Uh, then he goes into Sidon which is even further north of that. Again, he's in Gentile land, um, and then to the region of the Decapolis. So he he works his way back down uh, the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you've been with us through this study, you remember hearing about the Decapolis. 
uh, back in chapter 5, the man who was possessed by the legion, right? Thousands of demons. And Jesus cast them out into the pigs. And then they ran into the Sea of Galilee off of a cliff into that sea. That was the area. The Decapolis was the area that it says, Mark says, he went and told everyone about Jesus. Even though Jesus had said, don't tell anyone what happened. But he was telling everybody, this is what God did for me. He went away, it says in verse 20 of that chapter, and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. So people knew about Jesus. They'd been hearing about Jesus, right? His reputation preceded him. And I believe that this man paved the way for Jesus in this story and in this time of ministry. And, and I want to ask you, church, and I asked myself this week and, and prayed about this, but I want to ask you, too, to consider this. Does your testimony of what God has done for you pave the way for God to work in someone's life? Does it pave the way for them to see God in you and be ready for the life change that can come because of your relationship with God? Is that the kind of testimony, the story about you? If people think about you, does your life point people towards God? The story of Jesus, your reliance on him, the way you lean on him. Right? That's a challenge that I had to take from that this week. I want to be the kind of person that, that my testimony, my life story points people towards God. Okay, back to the action. Verse 32 said, And they brought him to a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. Uh, in faith, the friends here, we've seen this multiple times and throughout all the different gospels, right? Friends' faith bringing their sick, right? They brought him and begged Jesus for healing. And taking him aside, so Jesus takes the man aside from the crowd privately. He put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, weird, right? Spitting, he touched his tongue. And he looked up to heaven, he sighed. Jesus sighed and said to him, Ephaphatha, which means be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Now this is a real personal healing and it's quite touching if you think about this story, right? The many details definitely allude to an eyewitness account. Again, we talked about this at the beginning of Mark, that, that Peter, one of the 12, had probably given a lot of the information to John Mark. John Mark was not with Jesus. But this sounds like a story that Jesus uh, was performing right in front of his disciples, right in front of Peter, right? And, and more likely than not, that's who passed on this information. And so John Mark is writing this account based on what Peter had told him. The empathy of Jesus for this precious soul is highlighted in a way that, that really in other stories we see his love. But this, this is incredible. Imagine that you cannot hear and can barely speak to communicate with people. 
This is far before the days of any unified sign language, right? So this man was likely isolated and alone. And Jesus knew that. So Jesus pulls him aside and he engages with him one-on-one. He puts his finger in the ear. He, he touches his tongue. Perhaps maybe this man's family or, or some of the friends might have learned a way to communicate with him somehow, but the world wasn't ready for this. This would have caused him to be an outcast, somebody on the fringe, on the outside. And, and Jesus takes him aside and speaks to him or, or communicates with him in private. And I love this because this points to Jesus speaking to the man in his language, what that man needed, right? A kind of sign language that Jesus made up here for this story. I know these things don't work, right? And I'm putting my finger there. I know it's all plugged up. But we're going to open these things up. And he pulls his, his hand out of the ears. And then after spitting, again, kind of weird. I don't to- totally understand that, but it's kind of gross, hard to understand, but this is what happens. And I'm telling you, if I couldn't talk and, and somebody had to spit on their fingers and touch my tongue to make me talk, I guess that would have been all right. Right. But we're going to loose this tongue. Jesus says, I'm showing you, I understand you can't speak. And I'm going to, I'm going to take that from you. And then he looks up to heaven, acknowledging that the power for this miracle is coming from God above. He, Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, is still pointing people towards God the Father and that your relationship can be made whole because of who he is. In an interesting discussion a couple times this week between Kevin and I uh, about the phrase he sighed, right? We think it was showing both his dependence on God and also just the full range of emotions that Jesus had experienced. I think he felt for this man. He loved this man, and he had compassion for his needs. In Aramaic, the, the word ifafa the, means be loosed. You're all bound up. You can't hear anything. You can't speak. And Jesus loosens his tongue and frees his ears. And immediately the power of God through Jesus heals this man. It says, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. Again, we've seen this over and over. And look what it says there. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. That's what I was talking about earlier there. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Jesus tells him, don't tell anybody. My time has not come yet. But in typical fashion, the more he tells people not to tell, they tell it. They proclaim it. Verse 37, I thought was pretty cool. They were astonished beyond measure. They couldn't measure their astonishment of Jesus. It was unfathomable. Jesus deserves our 
praise for all that he's done in our lives, what he's done to redeem us, all that he is doing now, and all that he will do for us. And I hope that our praise as a church body, and not just the grace works, but a church universal, will get to that point where we're praising God for what he has done for us. And we're not just showing up on a Sunday morning, singing a couple of songs, listening to a word, and leaving here, but that we are leaving changed. The message that those people said is also pretty remarkable. It says, he has done all things well. The summary, the conclusion, it's intended to bring to mind God's work in creation. Again, John Mark knew it. Peter, who uh, was probably working, writing this with him. But John Mark is here. In Genesis 1, as, as God surveys everything that he has done, all the creation, he declares that it is good. It also harkens back to the prophet Isaiah, who in chapter 35 prophetically predicted that when the Messiah would come, right? Chapter 35, starting in verse 5, then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame man will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Isaiah wrote that hundreds of years before Jesus came. And yet we're seeing that play out in front of us. They had witnessed this. Ears opened, tongues set free, blind receiving sight, and lame men walking. This is another instance of Jesus as God. Uh, He's not merely a healer, a teacher, or a prophet. He is God. And the things that he does are good. The son's work in redemption is like the father's work in creation. It's done well, and it leaves nothing to be desired. Jesus is the Savior who does all things well. Jesus is the the Savior who's sufficient to save the whole world. Back in in chapter 7, verse 14, Jesus started with, Hear me, everyone, and understand. Now Mark relates the story of two Gentiles, right? The woman who falls at his feet, whose daughter was then miraculously delivered from the demon by the power of Jesus through her faith in Jesus. And then this man who received the touch of Jesus and now can hear and now can speak. Mark is is coming back to his insiders versus outsiders theme that he's touched on a couple different times. He wants all people to hear and understand him. Jesus does. And that's why he says that. So that we can all hear and understand and be included so that we can have that relationship with Jesus Christ. God, who created this world, wants to have a relationship with you. So he sent his son. And that relationship isn't based on our nationality or anyone else's, including the Jews. But it's focused in on a God who loves his creation. God loves you And he desires this relationship. Whether a Jew or a Gentile, man or a woman, educated or uneducated, knowledgeable or ignorant, 
only the touch of Jesus can, can enable anyone to truly hear, see, understand what Jesus has done for us. My prayer for you today is that you would receive that touch from Jesus and that you would begin to understand more clearly what a relationship with him can look like and how it can affect your entire life.